It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. A happy new year, I suppose. It's certainly not happy in Gaza, where blood is running in the streets. Four minutes ago in Rafa, yet another massacre has taken place. Rafa is the border with Egypt where Israel has driven a very substantial proportion of the Gaza population towards. In a happy new year in Jerusalem, where Christian and Muslim Palestinians alike are under relentless attack, their property destroyed and confiscated. It's not a happy new year in the West Bank where hundreds of people have been murdered by Israeli soldiers and settlers since October 7. And there's no Hamas in the West Bank. It's not a happy new year in Lebanon, in Syria. It's not a happy new year in Iran, where an ocean of blood was let by you-know-who just this afternoon. I had hoped to be bringing you the list of Epstein's clients. They have not committed suicide. They're still there, but they're still busily trying to suppress their names and associations with the pedophilic child trafficker and his paramour. But it's all coming up tonight here on The Mother of All Talk Shows. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. War, famine, pestilence, and disease. The four horsemen of the apocalypse are riding hard across Gaza even as we speak. In the last few minutes, an horrific massacre has taken place at Rafa, a little town I know well, the border between Gaza and Egypt, almost always locked on the orders of Israel and complied with by, well, a compliant Egyptian government. If it were not compliant, it wouldn't be the government, if you get my drift. A huge number of Palestinians are sleeping out in the streets of Rafah. I'm talking scores of thousands of families lying out on the cold earth in this January weather. And yet another massacre has now been visited upon them. If we get more news pictures of that, we will, of course, bring them to you. But the World Food Program has just warned that five-sixths five of all the people in the world suffering acute food shortage this day are in Gaza. Famine is being deliberately engendered as a weapon of war. Disease is spreading so fast that even the Israeli invasion force 
has begun to catch it, all kinds of exotic fungal diseases that they have never seen or experienced before are being caught even by the invaders. Imagine what the emaciated, hungry, cold, and homeless Palestinian people are now host to. In fact, an epidemic is exactly what Israel is hoping for. That's why they destroyed the water supply after they cut it off in the first hours of the post-October 7th invasion. They deliberately destroyed the health system, deliberately disabling effectively all of Gaza's hospitals. A people of 2.3 million are now being bombed in a tiny cage in which there are no effective hospitals left. The power, of course, has gone. The water supply has gone. And the deliberate targeting of the sewage system is all about trying to fan the flames of epidemic on top of the flames of ceaseless bombardment by the world's most terrifying and expensive weaponry given gratis to Netanyahu by Joe Biden, about whom much more later. War, famine, pestilence, disease are all now taking a grip of the vulnerable, the children in particular, in the Gaza Strip. But the war goes on. The Israeli invasion force is being contested every step of the way. And all that we are able to see from the Palestinian side, because, well, frankly, it's so bad you don't see much from the Israeli side. The war is not going well for the invaders. I'll be asking one of the country's most eminent experts, uh, Dr. Andreas Krieg, later in the show, about exactly why Israel has redeployed thousands of its soldiers out of the north of the Gaza Strip, having paid dearly in blood, their own blood as well as, of course, a very much larger amount of Palestinian blood to occupy in the first place. In Jerusalem, uh, the Armenian Christian community came under mass assault on Christmas Day. Yes, on Christmas Day, by masked settlers. We assumed they were settlers. They could have been soldiers who are attempting to seize Armenian Christian property in the old city of Jerusalem. A timeless battle has been going on all of the 50 years I've been involved in this cause of Palestine interested in the Israel-Palestine conflict with a very clear side, of course, but interested in the Armenian and the broader Christian population in Jerusalem. And in that 50 years, more and more of the Christian population in the old city of Jerusalem have been extirpated, have been ethnically cleansed, and driven out. And that continues even on Christmas Day. The 
West Bank has become, well, a carnage. It has actually seen a gigantic expansion in the activities of settlers and soldiers, usually working openly and visibly in tandem with each other as more land is seized for what Israel itself, the state itself, has described as an industrial level of new settlements in the Palestinian territories designated by the Oslo Agreement, which your government signed up to, your government, my government, all governments signed up to a Palestinian state in the West Bank, which is being concreted by Israeli settlement expanded on an industrial level. Hundreds, I think 325 was the last figure I saw. 325 Palestinians have been murdered, murdered in the West Bank where there is no Hamas, where the, how shall I put it, Western ally, President Abbas, is nominally in charge. But the Israeli forces sweep in and murder people. They seize homes. They demolish homes. They seize settlements and begin constructing upon them. It's no happy new year in Beirut, where Sheikh Hassan Nasrallah, Said Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of the party of God, Hezbollah, has just spoken uh, live in, again, the last few minutes. The egregious, criminal, cross-border assassination by Israel of one of the leaders of Hamas living there in the center of Beirut, from which, incidentally, reportedly, he was the point man for the facilitating of the release of Israeli hostages being held in Gaza. He was the point man uh, between Israel and the Hamas top leaders living in Qatar. So they clearly have decided to go for broke in every way by killing the man that was helping to get their hostages released. They clearly have abandoned their hostages. Well, we kind of knew that when they gunned down their own hostages, naked, carrying a white flag, speaking in Hebrew, with red hair and red beard. We kind of knew they didn't care about their hostages. When they murdered them in Gaza after a group of them had escaped, but by killing Aruri, uh, the deputy in Hamas, the man responsible for hostage negotiations, they have clearly signed a death warrant for their own hostages, their own Israeli citizens. But that too should not be surprising, as more and more evidence, testimony emerges about just how many of the people killed on October 7, in Israel were in fact killed by Israel, by its armed forces, its helicopter gunships, its 
tanks, its gunners, artillery, and infantry soldiers are now appearing almost daily on Israeli television to say how traumatized, horrified they are because they were ordered by their officers to effectively massacre their own citizens under what's called the Hannibal Directive, by which Netanyahu decreed that no Israeli must be taken prisoner. They should be killed rather than allowed to become prisoners, precisely because of the political leverage that taking prisoners gave the otherwise hopelessly outgunned Palestinian resistance fighters. More of that with considerable experts in the region later. The killing of Aruri is, of course, an international crime. Lebanon has the right to defend itself. It has the right to retaliate. Lebanon, if it were to launch an attack on Tel Aviv this evening, would be acting entirely lawfully, uh, but the Israelis count on the fact that that will not happen. They may be counting rather complacently, as the number of their crimes against neighboring countries intensifies and multiplies. I've no idea who Aruri was. I'd never heard of him before. I've no idea. Uh, how important he was to Hamas. But however important, I know that he will have been replaced before his body was placed in the ground. It is abundantly clear from all the other people that Israel has assassinated that these assassinations achieve absolutely nothing. Sheikh Yassin, the founder of Hamas, was assassinated. His successor, Rantisi, was assassinated. Yasser Arafat was assassinated. Abu Ali Mustafa was assassinated. Did that end Israel's problems? Did that mean that the Palestinian resistance forces, factions, ran out of new leaders? That the people lost heart and abandoned their struggle? Of course, the very opposite is true. By the way, in every single one of those assassinations I just adumbrated, the guy who came next was more of a problem for Israel than the devil that they knew. Something I warned many times when I said, deal with President Arafat. Make an agreement with President Arafat because after President Arafat comes the deluge. And all of that came to pass. But the mother of Aruri in Beirut was, of course, coming hard on the heels of the murder of an Israeli general, uh, sorry, a Iranian general in Damascus. Israel murdered him too. A second attack on a neighboring sovereign country, member state of the United Nations. They opened, murdered this Iranian general who was advising uh, the Syrian 
armed forces in Damascus when he was murdered. Now, they hope, <coughs> maybe believe, that Syria, that Lebanon, for fear of triggering the wider war, which Israel clearly wants, will not retaliate or will bide their time before retaliation. Uh, it may be hoped in Western capitals that this will be so, that Hezbollah will allow itself to be humiliated, reduced to making fiery speeches with no real fire, at least commensurate with the crime that has been committed against them. Uh, this man was murdered whilst a guest of Hezbollah. Anybody who knows anything about Arab and Islamic culture knows that that's a very, very serious problem for the armor proper, for the honor of an Islamic resistance movement. Nasrallah didn't give much away this evening except to say that revenge will be swift and it will be severe. We'll see and keep that under review here on the mother of all talk shows. But the crime that was committed in Iran today is equally clearly designed uh, to bring about the wider war, which is the only kind of war uh, that Israel can hope to prevail within, can hope to gain any advantage from, after all, the current war on the, in the north against Hezbollah and in the Gaza Strip is costing them an arm and a leg, literally and metaphorically. A huge numbers of their soldiers are being killed and wounded, maimed in that conflict. But it's also costing their economy. An economy never all that robust, entirely dependent on American private and public subvention to fund the lifestyle that they have, which is far better than the lifestyle enjoyed by your average American taxpayer, by the way. Israel has all the things American citizens don't have, like free health care, like free university education, all paid for by you, your mugs, down on Main Street in Peoria, and in Philadelphia, you mugs are funding a lifestyle on the Mediterranean for 7 million people, which uh, leaves, if I may put it this way, your own lifestyle in the shade. But all of that is imperiled as the cost to the Israeli economy of this particular war is beginning to be counted by the markets and by the credit markets in particular. But what happened today in Kerman, in Iran, could scarcely be of more grave consequence and potential for that wider war that Israel wants, that Iran and Hezbollah have been trying to avoid. The uh, general, Hajj Soleimani, as a shrine, 
this is the fourth anniversary of his murder by Donald Trump. An egregious murder of a man who had done more to destroy ISIS in the region than any number of armies of the so-called Western allies that purported, at least, to wish the end of ISIS. Soleimani brought about the end of ISIS. He was the hammer of ISIS. So Donald Trump murdered him four years ago. Today, tens of thousands of people flocked to his shrine in the city of Kerman, his hometown, in order to pay tribute uh, to a national and Islamic hero. For them, he is of entirely heroic capacities. And somebody blew up two IEDs in amongst the crowd and has murdered hundreds of Iranian citizens there for the commemoration of the murder of the national hero. The death toll is rising by the hour. The last one I saw was now well over 200 dead and well over 500 seriously wounded. The local hospital has become entirely overwhelmed. Now, who carried out that crime? Well, I'm no Inspector Poirot, but Jacques Hughes, Benjamin Netanyahu, and Joe Biden. I'll be right back after a short break with two of the very best guests you have ever seen. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Dr. Andreas Creek has, if you'll forgive the pun, had a good war. He has been on multiple television channels, giving quite the clearest, the most concise, and the wisest analysis of any of the commentators that I have seen. He is an author, he's a professor at King's College, no less, 
and an expert on violence and warfare in the Middle East. And I'm glad to say we have him with us now. Dr. Krieg, thank you for joining us. I'm a big admirer of your uh, work. Let me ask you first, if I may, what was the meaning uh, of Israel's assassination of Aruri? What did they intend or hope to gain from that? Thank you very much for having me. Very kind words. Look, I, I think it was an act of vengeance as much of what we've seen coming out of Israel in, in the last two, three months has been about vengeance. It was never really about trying to find a solution to any problem. Uh, it was an act of vengeance against an individual who the Israelis considered to be instrumental in the 7th of October attack, someone who they see as a liaison, uh, someone who connects Hamas to Hezbollah as well as to the to the Iranian uh, regime. And uh, in, in that respect, they thought it would be now a good time to to get rid of him, which I think is obviously very, very, um, you know, quite stupid to do, considering the context where we're in, considering how tense the relations are anyway, how tense the northern border is. And where, you know, the Americans have hoped actually to move on and say, you know, leave, leaving the, 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 the region in calmer waters. Um, the Israelis are now escalating again um, uh, in, a, in a strike that I think uh, was being completely counterproductive, as you said in your in your opening words, you know, quite correctly. I mean, Hamas is a network. Hezbollah is a network. These are these the resistance movements are networks. If you if you, you know all of these networks like Al Qaeda, like ISIS, like like all these network non-state actors, if you take one of them out, all these decapitation strikes, we've done it for 25 years, you know, and, and every single time we and I mean mostly also Western countries as well have taken out these sort of leaders, they've been replaced imminently uh, with someone else who, as you rightly say, was usually more radical uh, than the previous one. So very counterproductive. And so, you know, I can't see any sort of military sense in what they were doing. Uh, uh, it's not something that will in any way weaken Hamas, weaken Hezbollah, or weaken the resistance movement. So it's, I can only explain this as a as an eye for an eye sort of act of vengeance, of uh, retribution, of, and also potentially sending a message of deterrence. But obviously also deterrence has failed for the most part. And again, none of these decapitation strikes have ever led to effective deterrence. The, the Mossad on its official uh, Twitter account uh, actually put out a very beautiful picture of Beirut uh, with the words Beirut before. Uh, this is just this evening they did that. Clearly an attempt to uh, say that, that that's before, but there may be an after. Uh, how badly mm. does Israel want a war uh, with Lebanon? Because... Um, there must be a limit uh, to what the Hezbollah can uh, tolerate uh, without really joining the war. I mean, they're in the war. They're tying down uh, Israeli divisions. They're costing the Israeli economy a lot. They have lost 143 Hezbollah martyrs since uh, October 7th. But given that Hezbollah has a hundred and 30,000 missiles, well, they're definitely not really, really in the war yet, are they? 
Absolutely right. Uh, they have kept it somewhat below the threshold of full escalation. And it's been a tit-for-tat war that's been going on now for three months. And Iran has been in a, this kind of Cold War situation with Israel for the last couple of years, where neither side really wanted to escalate. What Israel has done yesterday was an escalation. That is a clear breach of the boundaries of what was somewhat the agreement of where both both sides were kind of playing that game. So Hezbollah will have to respond one way or the other. The thing is, though, they've killed a Palestinian. Um, so they didn't kill a senior Hezbollah leader. So that is means Hezbollah doesn't need to respond immediately. But he was obviously under Hezbollah hospitality and protection, and he was killed within a Hezbollah stronghold. So they need to respond to that. But usually Hezbollah and Iran have proven to be far more strategic, particularly in, in their patience as well as how they choose their targets. And they usually respond not, uh, not instantly, but with a sort of delay. So we will probably see a response later on. And Hezbollah doesn't have an interest in making this war more than what it is now. And there are quite a lot of people in Israel who would like to use the opportunity of saying the world is against us anyway. We're in this existential war. That's how it has been framed domestically for the Israeli audience. Although, you know, if you think about it, it's really laughable to see this as a as an existential war for, for Israel, considering the wars that Israel has fought over the last 70 odd years. Um, but it's been framed like this. So there are some in the in the military establishment who are thinking now or never, now we can actually use that opportunity to bring that war to uh, Lebanon. But as you rightly say, uh, the le- the, 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 there's a lot of breathing space for escalation up uh, in a way that I think Hezbollah could escalate in a way that, you know, is nowhere near, uh, you know, they, Hamas has no, nowhere near the capabilities that that uh, Hezbollah has. And it's the reach of the of the, of the weaponry. You, you mentioned 130,000 missiles. Nobody knows how many they do have. I remember when I was the last time in southern Lebanon uh, a couple of years ago, and I think it was 2014, yeah, nearly a decade ago, um, we, you know, they had around 100,000 missiles. We expect this in the last 10 years to have, have potentially doubled. So nobody knows how many they have. Certainly a lot of new technology, a lot of more of reach, more uh, the warheads they have are far worse than anything that uh, that Hamas has. And they can basically hit any target in Israel as they please. So if they wanted to strike inside Israel, deep inside Israeli territory, with a large warhead, Hezbollah could do it. But obviously that would be the sort of escalation Israel is looking for at the moment to kind of create a casus belly. But it's also a slap in the face. Remember, I mean, the Americans wanted Karma Waters. They withdrawn one of the U.S. Uh, strike uh, carrier groups from the region because they had hoped this would be uh, the end of you know escalation as 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 was feared on the seventh of October. And now Israel is choosing to actually escalate and potentially put more fuel on the fire. Uh, and so there is there is certainly going to be a an escalatory response. The question is just when and how. And I still trust that Hezbollah, despite everything. Is, is somewhat a more strategically minded and rationally minded, funny enough, rationally minded actor than, than Israel is. Uh, is this a kind of Samson option uh, that uh, Netanyahu is, is uh, deploying, uh, you know, bring the, bring the house down uh, on top of everyone? Uh, it is clear, not to everyone, there are many people who criticize what I'm about to say, but it is clear to me that the Americans don't want a war with Iran. They don't want uh, to have to go to war uh, with uh, Lebanon, which is what uh, strikes on Hezbollah would inevitably uh, become. Uh, 
but Netanyahu seems to uh, want to drag them into it. Yeah, it's the hardliners. I mean, it's the it's not just Netanyahu. Netanyahu is the poster child of this far right ethno-nationalist movement inside his own government um, and he empowered them. He's been, you know, over the last 20 years, or the last 30 years really, has pivoted further and further to the far-right fringes of Israeli society and has dragged the entire country to the far-right as well. So I used to live in Israel uh, more than a decade ago um, before Netanyahu came to power and it was there was still a centre, a somewhat middle centre sort of uh, political way that has completely disappeared. He's dragged the country to the far-right um, the populism is now everywhere uh, and it's that sort of society that that is now coming out on TikTok and social media and saying all the things that they're saying about Palestinians, about Arabs, the racism, the xenophobia that we're seeing. These are the people who are sent into Gaza as well. Uh, and they, they kind of create these videos which are dehumanizing Palestinians and Arabs. Um, so Bibi Netanyahu is clearly the problem, but he has now created a movement also within government, within the Knesset as well, who are supporting him. And he himself knows his own personal political survival is very much based on this war to continue. And the fear is for him that if this war ever went into another phase, phase two, which would be less escalatory, um, you know, low intensity in Gaza, that this would be enough for those people, or, you know, at the center of politics in Israel now to, to kind of launch uh, any new elections and any new election of any poll you're seeing at the moment means that uh, Bibi would be eventually gone. So he has a clear uh, idea of keeping this going, keeping escal escalation high, because that may means he will have to stay in power for the time being. He's under immense pressure domestically. He's even, immense, he's even under immense pressure from his own far-right groups, because for them, uh, the ethnic cleansing that we're seeing in uh, in the Gaza Strip is not going far enough. I mean, they would love to see more of that, you know, what they call depopulizing de or de de the depopulation of, of the Gaza Strip. These far-right nutcases, and many of them are actually convicted terrorists by Israeli law, uh, these kind of people, for them, it doesn't go far far enough. So he's under pressure there. He's under pressure by the establishment, which is the intelligence services, the military, who certainly are not united in what they want in Gaza. They're not united uh, in terms of knowing what the day after would be. They're not united when it comes to having a strategy in, in the north of uh, Israel vis-a-vis -vis Hezbollah. So we shouldn't think of Israel as a unitary actor. Israel is an extremely divided country right now, not only societally, socially, but also in terms of those people who lead the country at the helm. Um, and so that's not really the sort of country that should be going to war and should be deciding the fate of stability and security and prosperity for the entire region. Uh, doctor, what's the meaning of the troop withdrawals in northern Gaza? Uh, given how much blood was spilled to take these positions, why is Israel now abandoning them? Yeah, good question. I mean, what we see here is um, a phase, we're probably seeing the beginning of phase two of that operation. The Americans, despite everything, have behind closed doors put a lot of pressure on the Israelis to kind of bring this war to an end. I mean, this war for the Americans, for the Biden administration, is a nuisance uh, as they're going into re-election. So they want to make sure that this doesn't become or doesn't, doesn't remain uh, this sort of headline uh, you know, producing headlines for in the media, but also in, in, in the entire campaigning season that they're going into. So they put pressure on the Americans to kind of 
uh, find an off-ramp. The Israelis have said, no, we're not interested in an off-ramp right now. Bibi particularly not interested uh, to find an off-ramp. Um, but they're also realizing that this war cannot be won. There was a belief in early December, late November, that where the Israelis thought they were very close to finding uh, a Sinwar and, and Dave and other uh, sort of uh, figureheads of Hamas, get rid of them, and then kind of build a victory narrative around it. That's kind of what Israel wants. They want to create a victory narrative. They haven't really won anything. I mean, if you look at the objectives, they haven't freed the, the hostages. There isn't a military way to get rid of them. They haven't really made a lot of progress when it comes to the tunnels. They haven't found any of the Hamas leaders. They haven't stopped Hamas from actually firing rockets. So if you look at the list of objectives, they haven't really achieved anything. So they're now saying they need a long war. And not only does Bibi want it politically, but even the IDF is now saying we are probably in it for the rest of 2024 and possibly beyond that. Uh, so it's a kind of protracted conflict, never ending, which couldn't be maintained at, this, at the current uh, level of escalation and can't be maintained at the current level of um, intensity. So they're withdrawing troops, knowing that there will be a rotation coming in whereby some will have to be sent back into uh, the Gaza Strip later on. But for the most part, it's also freeing up capacity because as you mentioned earlier on already, the Israeli economy is in a dire position. They need people to return to their, their desks, to their uh, workplaces to keep generating money for this war um, because this war is also economically not sustainable. So they're trying to create a way, an off-ramp that makes the war more palatable to domestic population, more palatable to the Americans and more sustainable for an indefinite period of time. And we always know when wars go into that sort of phase, as we've seen in Iraq and Afghanistan from our Western point of view, this is usually when we begin to fail these wars. This is when you go into a phase where you basically realize you're not winning a war, but you keep on going anyway. And finally, Doctor, and I'm grateful for your time, uh, the uh, atrocity today in Kerman appears to have killed hundreds of people and maimed many hundreds more, a uh, very serious security lapse on the part of the Iranians, uh, to be sure. Uh, but it is murder most foul. It is mass murder most foul and can only have been carried out uh, by one or other of the uh, organizations fighting terrorist organizations that are in the pay of and under the protection of uh, Western countries. One immediately thinks of the Mujahideen Kalk, the MEK, based in France, based in Albania, under NATO protection. I've seen them with my own eyes. Uh, the uh, consequences of this mass murder may be even more serious than the murders of the general in Damascus and the Hamas leader in Beirut. Well, we have to be very careful at this point to point any fingers. Um, I, I agree with you. I mean, the MEK is a terrible organization, uh, certainly uh, not the sort of actor that anybody should have any engagement with. Um, but I would, I would say, looking at where we stand at the moment, look at the evidence that we see, First of all, mass atrocities with civilian casualties. While the Israelis kill a lot of civilians in Gaza and Palestinians, they usually refrain from killing Iranians, um, uh, Iranian civilians. They usually target them, as we've seen in, in, in uh, quite interestingly in Beirut yesterday. I mean, they were able to kill who they wanted to kill without any collateral damage. 
it seems like the Israelis are able to do it if they really want to. And usually when they're in Iran, they, they are able to do it. When they use their proxies in Iran, they're able to do it. Uh, and also considering where it happened, how it happened, it kind of, it looks like it's ISIS uh, Khorasan more than anything else. I think it's one of these uh, sort of terrorist, terrorist organizations more than, than anything else. Um, but it, it will be severe. And the Iranians, again, they will have to do an investigation and see what, what comes out of it and then respond adequately. And they usually respond adequately with delay. Uh, I just don't think there's any evidence that um, any of the Western or Israeli proxy groups were involved in that attack, at least as far as we know it at the moment. Dr. Krieg, thank you for your wisdom. Very good to meet you finally uh, in person. Dr. Andreas Krieg, author, professor at King's College. Thanks for joining us on the Mother of All Talk Shows. Let me take a quick break and I'll be right back with more great guests, great calls. This is the Mother of All Talk Shows. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. The one and only Chris Hedges, political commentator extraordinaire, joins us again on the Mother of All Talk Shows. Chris, what about an answer uh, to the question on my poll? Uh, Was Epstein and Maxwell, uh, maybe to a slightly lesser extent, or maybe not, knowing her father, as well as I did. Uh, were Epstein and Maxwell Israeli spies in your view? I think there's a lot of indication that there was, I mean, first of all, we know that, uh, that his houses were wired for surveillance. Uh, we know that there were numerous uh, videotapes of powerful people uh, allegedly having sexual relations with a harem that Maxwell uh, and Epstein uh, held at their uh, on their island and in their houses, and we know that all of those tapes disappeared. Presumably, they're in the hands of the FBI. Um, and I think it's also interesting that uh, none of the people, uh, certainly in positions of any real authority, uh, have been charged. So I I wouldn't be surprised, uh, but I haven't seen any hard evidence. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that those questions are valid. Uh, Bill Clinton, w- would he be one of those who did not have sexual relations on that island? Uh, his name seems now, to be the biggest name so far. Well, that would be hard to believe, given the proclivities of Bill Clinton. Um, uh, you know, Dershowitz is another, uh, and there's a long list, and only, of course, Prince Andrew and uh, Mitchell and I mean these are all very uh, the former prime minister of Israel. Uh, uh, so these are this is a powerful cabal of the global elite who have the facility to essentially, if it's true, block any information. And I think the big question comes down to where are those tapes? We know they exist. Uh, where are they? Nobody's provided an answer to that. The assumption is that they're with the FBI, but we don't know. Now, you mentioned uh, Mr. Dershowitz. He is, has been, it's said, tapped by Mr. Netanyahu to represent Israel in what will be very quickly upon us. I think the 12th of January is the first public hearing uh, of South Africa's reference to the uh, ICJ uh, on, on genocide charges. Would you have picked Mr. Dershowitz as your brief 
in those circumstances? Well, no, but, you know, Israel doesn't have many friends at this point. Dershowitz has long been, I uh, actually debated him on uh, Israel-Palestine at Columbia University. Uh, he lies uh, uh, like he breathes. Uh, and, uh, and so do, frankly, do the, do, does this to the Israeli military and the Israeli government. Um, so they're kind of in sync. Uh, I mean, I found it fascinating that Netanyahu would even want to defend himself at the ICJ because I don't think Israel recognizes the validity of the court. Yes, uh, I suppose he had to make a quick judgment. Uh, this is all moving very fast. Uh, South Africa have done the world uh, service by having the uh, gumption to bring what seems on the face of it a very strong case uh, that uh, all of the actions and the words almost in synchronicity of Israeli leaders, the Israeli ambassador to London was at it on, on LBC this very day. Uh, they are talking genocide and doing genocide, aren't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, they have been surprisingly candid. One would think they would be candid in Hebrew and not so candid in English, but they've been quite candid in English, turning it into a parking lot, uh, you know, making it uninhabitable. Uh, yeah, they've been quite open about what they're doing. And then uh, we have to talk about the scale of the assault. So I was in Sarajevo during the war, three to 400 shells a day, two dozen wounded a day, uh, four to five dead a day. Uh, and I don't want to minimize what was happening in Sarajevo. 30 years later, I still have nightmares about it. But in, in Gaza, we're talking about a child dying every 10 minutes. We're talking about hundreds of people dying a day. And then, of course, uh, hundreds more being wounded, thousands missing. So you juxtapose the siege of Sarajevo with what's happening in Gaza. And we have not seen this obliteration, this kind of carpet bombing of a densely packed urban area. I, I don't know. You probably have to go back to Stalingrad or something where 90 percent of the, yeah. the edifices and buildings were destroyed. I think you're right. I think Stalingrad is the comparator. Uh, and of course, the difference is that uh, the civilian population had left Stalingrad when it became uh, the epicenter of the greatest battle uh, ever fought in, in human history. Here, all these uh, civilians are literally trapped in the middle of the battle. Uh, it is when you think about it, as you and I know Gaza well, when you think about it, it is incredible, literally incredible, in, in that it's impossible to believe that this has all been allowed to continue for as long as it has. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I covered war and I covered for 20 years overseas. I'm uh, used to the cynicism of the United States and the global elite, but even I am uh, taken aback at the level of slaughter and the level of destruction. I mean, 500,000, according to the UN, 500,000 Palestinians in Gaza are now starving. Uh, the sanitation, we're on the cusp of major epidemics of infectious diseases. Uh, I mean, this kind of siege where you destroy the entire infrastructure, including, of course, hospitals, where you orchestrate a famine, uh, it, it's 
it's almost medieval. And yet not only is, let's talk about Europe, the industrial world not responding, but in fact, they're aiding, in the case of the United States, aiding and abetting a clear case of genocide. It is quite uh, staggering. And, and, and you know, it's, it's worse than they have nowhere to go. They're told to go uh, to the south. They're told that this area will be safe, and then they're bombed. I mean, the, the kind of uh, the cruelty of uh, trying to seek a safe haven, and then, like Hani Yunus, remember, Rafa, these were places that were uh, the people in the northern part of Gaza were told to go as a safe area. Now these people, these areas are being obliterated by Israeli bombs. So, you know, 1,000-pound one, iron fragmentation bombs. It's, it's, it's really, it's, uh, it's jaw-dropping. Uh, and, uh, and it's, of course, aside from what it's done to the Palestinians, as I covered the Middle East for seven years, it's really deeply counterproductive in the long term for Israel. Well, uh, we'll see about that. Uh, they obviously have decided to go for broke, hence the uh, absolutely illegal terrorist murder uh, of a Hamas official in another country, in the capital of another country, in Beirut. Uh, but as long as they get away with these things, Chris, you know, why would they stop doing them? Well, they they can get away with them, and the only restraint uh, that could be imposed on them would come from the United States, and it won't come from either of the two ruling parties uh, because their munitions, in particular tank munitions, are all produced in the United States. But you see that next generation, the, the polls, uh, particularly among the young, but really uh, certainly within the Democratic Party, it's a majority of people do not support what's happening in Gaza, uh, what Israel is doing in Gaza. And so the long-term consequences are not good for Israel. We're already watching the United States walk away from Ukraine, uh, but eventually the same thing will happen with Israel. And if the United States ever pulls the plug on Israel, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be a very difficult uh, for Israel to sustain itself, as it already is a pariah nation. Only 10 countries voted against the ceasefire in that non-binding resolution, two of them being, of course, the U.S. and Israel. So uh, it's a very isolated state. Uh, settler colonial projects can work, as, such as in the United States, when you exterminate, as the United States did, 90% of the indigenous population. That Israel can't kill on that level. 5.5 million Palestinians under occupation and another 9 million in the diaspora. And I just came back from Egypt and Doha I was doing broadcasting for Al Jazeera, uh, the, the uh, stock of Hamas is in the stratosphere. Um, so uh, the, the, the siege or the attack, uh, the genocidal attack by Israel has catapulted Hamas's stock, uh, not just throughout the Muslim world, but throughout the global South, because this sends a message. The rules don't apply to us. They apply to you, but they don't apply to us. Um, following 20 years of the American debacles in the Middle East, uh, the, the credibility of the United States uh, is, is uh, pretty much nil. I mean, it, it's, uh, uh, it's almost as isolated now as Israel. It's, it's uh, of course, the, uh, as, uh, because of its um, uh, embrace of uh, this killing and, and uh, the empowerment of the Israeli military to continue this killing. 
Now, I know you're a, you're a peace-loving man, you're a Christian man, uh, you probably are an opponent of nuclear weapons. But I've got to tell you, if I was the leader of Iran, I would be rapidly enriching sufficient uranium to make myself a nuclear weapon, because if Israel has hundreds of nuclear weapons and is more or less openly evincing a wish to destroy my country, well, I'd make sure I had at least one of the same weapons that they have. Uh, that would be logical, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, it's the North Korea rule. So you can invade and destroy Iraq because not only did it not have weapons of mass destruction, uh, it doesn't have or didn't have under Saddam Hussein nuclear weapons. So North Korea did, which is why it's still here. Uh, and that lesson wasn't lost on the rest of the world. So, yes, I think the, the and remember, Israel's nuclear program was done in secret. It, it was in violation of the New Proliferation Treaty. And again, the United States was uh, certainly complicit in uh, making Israel a nuclear power. So it, uh, it, it it's a response and an understandable response. Yes. Now, uh, what about the impact of all of this at home, uh, Chris? Uh, one, the sense is a kind of hiatus around the uh, choice of, of the Republican candidate, uh, a doubt as to whether uh, the leading candidate in all the polls, Donald Trump, will be able uh, to take the field, to be on the ballots. We've got people trying to strike candidates off the ballots in uh, true Banana Republic uh, style. We've got the opinion polls you referred to uh, over the Gaza issue. What's your sense of where we're going in, the, in this uh, now? We're now into a, a presidential election year. Well, clearly the strategy of the Democratic Party is to try and put Donald Trump in jail. I don't know if it's going to work. Um, they don't have anything to offer, really, the Democratic Party. Uh, Biden's approval rating, is, and especially with his fervent support of Israeli genocide, has sunk to uh, uh, pitiful levels. Um, uh, so the Democratic Party really offers nothing, uh, but it's an attempt to remove Trump from the ballot and uh, and, and essentially uh, put him on trial and uh, perhaps even attempt to put him in prison. That's that's what they're trying to do. I don't know if it's going to work. Um, uh, but it, it, it is, I think, as you point out, an indication of how uh, anemic and how uh, broken the American political system is uh, that we've descended to those kinds of tactics. Uh, Trump is, of course, sounding more and more uh, like a, uh, kind of the, that right-wing uh, demagogue of, of you know immigrants poisoning our society, etc. So it looks on both sides very, very vicious. I think there's a high likelihood that Trump. I, I don't think there's any doubt that he'll get the Republican nomination, but I think there's a high likelihood that he he could win the election. Well, that would certainly uh, put us on the helter uh, skelter. Uh, Whatever happened to, and I kind of owe you an apology, Chris, I was ready to suspend uh, my detestation of Robert Kennedy's uh, extraordinary fidelity to the Zionist cause 
because of what Kennedy was offering more broadly, more widely on all the other uh, fronts. But of course, as he's as the post October seventh, Kennedy has become more Netanyahu than Netanyahu. Is it profiting him in the polls, in your view? No, I know from people who work on his campaign that especially younger supporters have deserted him in droves. Uh, it has profited him in terms of centers of power, uh, in terms of funding, but not in terms of support. Uh, and the stuff that comes out of his mouth is just ludicrous. You know, Hamas in their charter says they have to kill Jews all over the world. As far as I know, Hamas has never carried out an attack against Jews outside of historic Palestine, occupied territories or Israel. I mean, so it's just uh, fantasy. He, he has, it's the talking points of the most right wing, the most retrograde elements within Israel. Um, it's not factually based. Uh, I can't forgive him for that. I never could. Um, but yes, he's become, uh, you know, uh, he's and on that issue. I mean, there's no other way to describe him but as an extremist. Yeah, I mean, he sounds like one of these settler uh, leaders, yeah. and he's running around with uh, with people uh, in the U.S. who are representatives of these uh, settler uh, extremists. It's a sad end, though, to the Kennedy political dynasty, isn't it? Well, yes. Uh, I mean, it was always a mixed dynasty. Uh, remember that both JFK and Robert Kennedy had this fixation of trying to assassinate Castro. Uh, you know, they, they were very hostile to the civil rights movement, um, which doesn't cancel out the positives. I think there's strong uh, evidence that JFK was willing to confront the military industrial complex. He didn't trust them, especially after the Bay of Pigs. Um, but yes, it is, it is a sad end, but that dynasty kind of petered out and died after the assassination of Robert Kennedy. I think so, uh, unfortunately. Chris Hedges, as always, a pleasure, an honor to interview you on the mother of all talk shows. Thanks for joining us. You are listening to the mother of all talk shows podcast with George Galloway. The legend that is a robust in New York is on the line. Robas, welcome to the show. It's been a few weeks since we heard you, and we always miss you. So welcome back. Thank you for the kind words. A resplendent, powerful, and empowering New Year to you. You know, your wonderful wife who's just on, Gayatri, the social media rattler. And the previous comment is correct. It, it appears that after her long influence, whether through osmosis or deliberate technique, her sense of style has rubbed off on you in a positive way. <laughs> so, you know, I mentioned that. Mosca. Um, Mosca. I wanted to I wanted to carve this time out, you know, because I, for reasons that are frustrating and complicated, and I've hinted on it before, I have been effectively non-personed by the government of the United States of America. And uh, because of that, I'm, I'm financially compromised in many ways. However, I I wanted to, you know, the world will still be on fire afterwards, but I wanted to express gratitude 
and uh, a deep, profound uh, respect and privilege to be able to call in on this show. And you know, I don't, I don't have money. If I did per se, you know, I would support you through Patreon, and I encourage those who sure, can. Of course, you know, but I, I can't, I can't. You know, my daily drivers include the guys from the Duran, but I can't call them. But I can't call um, Brian Bledick. I can't call any of the people that I take analysis from. I can't even send them a note without sending them money. And that's not a slight on them. That's just the way their thing is set up. However, to, to, to have the ability to call um, the mother of all talk shows, you know, and I, I, I first called when you were on WBAI uh, and, and sort of engaged you in the 9-11 uh, situation. And after all this time to be able, you know, it moves me personally um, to be able to, to call and, you know, I don't, I don't have to have money. Or I could just be a person out there in reality. You know, I could just be a person in the world, you know, a man trying to determine his own way while I still can, while life is with me. And, you know, I just wanted to, to take this time to carve out this time and, and say that I really and truly appreciate no matter what happens going forward, the mother of all talk shows. And I wanted to, you know, do you, you want to take in calls for reasons that were, were justified. You know, your family were on the, um, on the Happy New Year um, sort of celebrations. But I, I really was important to me. And the warm, wonderful lady, you know, I don't know her name after all this time, but she's like a ray of sunshine through the dark, penetrating clouds that are hanging in New York. She's always warm, always nice to me, always returns my calls when she can. A special shout out to her. You know, your staff is wonderful. You are wonderful. And, you know, I um, I just wanted to say thank you. Appreciate it. Well, uh, we are all uh, touched and moved uh, by that, especially delivered in the wonderful tonal quality that you have. You're the Barry White of uh, our global university of the airwaves. It is a real pleasure always to hear you. Thank you for your kindness. There's another legend on the line. It's the one and only Tommy in Glasgow on Palestine. Go on yourself, Tom. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. Salam alaikum, brother. How are you doing today? Salam alaikum, salam alaikum, barakatuh. I'm good. Thank you very much. What would you like to say? If I just digress a, a small second to second uh, my brother Arubos there, what a beautiful call and, and second every point he made. What a beautiful show you built. What a wonderful university of, of, of a life that people can join, participate in a egalitarian way where, you know, to, to get views across it is null and void anywhere else. So, and to, and to the Thank person you, on, on Hong Kong. You deserve, you deserve, you should be proud of it. And, and, and going forward, I've been educating myself in Middle Eastern history and looking at the first university uh, that was built, uh, and I've got stuff on that. And in future weeks, I'll, I'll come on and maybe do a wee many small parts on that in dedication to you and your and your beautiful wife. Because, and I, I, forgive me for saying, I've not patronised or condescending anyway, but I've known you prior to you met your lovely wife, and she made you from a good man, a great man, even to an even better great person, because your points of view like the other night you were talking about, you know, don't vote, 
you only encourage them. For a, a person who's a politician, for the views that you've spoused for all the years and the stances you take, but the, this university you've built with your, your great wife there, then alhamdulillah, and I say that in a beautiful way, alhamdulillah, all place to God. I mean, when the Palestinians are being brutalised in the most terrible way, when their house gets blown up, alhamdulillah, when their mum, they lose their mum, alhamdulillah. That means a praise, all praise to God. Those are dad, their brother, or sister, alhamdulillah. So alhamdulillah for giving something beautiful in the world, to give some people hope. As I was on the last time, in tears, and many people are, are looked to the comments as well, suffering tears as well. But just to hear a breath of fresh air, and other people in the same vibe, keeps people alive. And with the Palestinian people, they're the true people of the world just now. You know, the faith that they've got in the unseen fighting against us, uh, unrivaled oppression and so the university and as I say I pay tribute to you and your wife the, the lady is Fatima Al-Fizri and, and says the first university was built uh, in, in, in the world I mean hundreds of years before Harvard uh, years before Oxford years before the one in, in, in Italy in Bologna uh, and, and, and it was became a place where people would come and learn, and, and later on maybe tell all these people, but one great who passed away four years ago in terrible circumstances and the place where the Zionist entity is taken is really despicable, but Hajj Qasim Soleimani, uh, Soleimani what a guy he was for just stopping the ISIS, the Daesh movement that was there for saving the world and they massacred them and uh, for the, the person on hunger strike, please desist. I'm in a partial hunger strike myself. I've been eating one meal a day and, and bringing, uh, you know, you don't have to eat as much as we do. We don't have to consume. And yeah, it's, it's hard to eat, but as, as, as Hajj uh, Qasim Suleimani said to people who were around, don't rush to martyrdom. This fight is long and this fight is hard. We need people who are strong. Yes, don't be afraid of death. Look with the Palestinians, they're not afraid of death. So don't be afraid of death. And for a there. Good luck with your fight against the system there and everybody, whatever fight they've got, thanks for allowing us to come together, John. God bless you and keep fighting the system because the terrible oppression, you know, that is, is upon the world just now, good people yourself, thank God, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, there's nothing that they can do. All praise to God for your show, your listeners and the people of Palestine. God bless. And can I just say one final thing? See the little incubator babies, if just one of them comes back, let Moses can take down the modern day for own God willing, but we should be building in the next generation or two the Palestine, uh, a Jewish Palestine, a Christian Palestine, a, a Muslim Palestine, a Palestine for all, a holy land, and we should be building it because the Zionist entities days are truly over for what they're doing now. The whole world is coming together peacefully, and the resistance is fighting them back at the sum of their own medicine. And God willing, uh, the victors will we'll be the true, the ones on the true path. And thanks for allowing me to spend the time, Dr. Shield, if you God bless. Thank you. Uh, what can I say, Tommy, uh, after that? The sheer power uh, of that call uh, has left me uh, breathless. Uh, but we're out of time, so uh, I can't respond in the way I would like to. Uh, I will on another occasion, uh, Tommy. Thank you. Uh, because there's yet another legend on the line. It's Norma in Bristol, who I have to publicly thank for insisting on her £100 donation to the mother of all talk shows. I'm humbled by it, Norma. And uh, I, 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 I didn't ask you if you wanted me to publicly thank you, but I decided that I really felt obliged 
to publicly thank you. God bless you. What would you like to say, Norma? Oh, George, it was just a Christmas present. I'm not that rich, but I thought, well, I was giving all the money away to the family. I might as well give you some. No, quickly, George, because we haven't got time. I'm in a bit of a muddle because if, as you implied earlier, that Israel may have been responsible for October the 7th um, and not Hamas, why would Hamas have Israeli hostages, um, which Netanyahu wants released? I don't understand that. No, no, well, I'll, I'll, I think you misunderstood what I said. Uh, of course, Hamas and Jihad and PFLP and other resistance organizations, of course, they broke out of the concentration camp on October 7th. And of course, uh, they uh, made war on their occupiers. Uh, they fought uh, the uh, Israeli Defense Force. They would call it the Israeli Occupation Force. They may have killed uh, some civilians. I don't know exactly what happened and who killed whom. A significant number of the Palestinian resistance were killed. A very significant number of Israelis and foreigners in Israel were also killed. But they weren't all killed by the Palestinian resistance. As is now clear, very substantial numbers. The exact number we do not know yet, but we will. Very substantial numbers of the Israelis who were killed on October 7th were killed by the Israeli armed forces from the air and from the land. We know that the car park at the music festival was devastated from the air by Israeli attack helicopters. We know that. We've got footage of it. And we know from testimony after testimony, I've lost track now of the number of Israeli soldiers who've now appeared on Israeli TV explaining how they were ordered by their officers to destroy houses and the people in them. Hostages, potential hostages. They were ordered to destroy them so that they could not be taken to the Gaza Strip as prisoners of the Palestinian resistance. Now, I don't know if it's half or a quarter or three quarters or 10% or 80%. I don't know that. I'm not pretending to know that. But Israeli media is racking up the number of people who were, in fact, killed under this Operation Hannibal Directive, written by Benjamin Netanyahu, determined to avoid any more Israeli hostages being held by the resistance and traded for large numbers of Palestinian political prisoners. They were determined under Operation Hannibal that even if it cost the lives of hundreds or thousands, 
of Israelis. They were not going to allow them to be taken prisoner if they could possibly avoid it. So I'm not, of course, saying that all or most or many of the Israeli casualties on October 7th were killed by Israelis. I cannot quantify it, but I do know that a significant number of Israelis who were killed on October 7th were in fact killed by the Israeli military themselves. I wish I had time uh, to go on. I'm already six minutes over, uh, but I can't. But the good news is, God willing, I'm back on Sunday at the earlier time of 7 p.m. UK time. So I only have time to dedicate this show to one of the greatest journalists and broadcasters and filmmakers in the whole world who passed away this week. May God rest John Pelger, the great journalist whose life has ended but whose work will live forevermore. Thanks for watching.